Merry Christmas. Hello, nerds and nerdettes. Junior ambassadors, boys and girls of all ages. We're nerds, and uh, we're pretty proud of it. You're entering the Nerd Knighted Nations podcast. Never apologize for being All things geek are up for grabs. Because unnerdy people never apologize for being assholes. Now, here's your ambassadors, Melissa Nicholson and Jared Boots. Greetings, nerds and nerdettes. Happy holidays and welcome back to the Nerd Night of Nations podcast. I, of course, am your co-host to the Midwest United States, Jared Boots. With me, as always, is our ambassador to the great white north of Canada, Miss Melissa Nicholson. Melissa, how you doing? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too, and I'm doing well. Doing well? How's the snow up there treating you? It's treating me all right. It's it showed up and then it melted away. So it'll it'll be coming back at some point. But it's it's you know gotta gotta plot its revenge, right? So. Oh, so so for the time being, the weather outside isn't frightful. Nope. <laughs> well, uh, are you ready to kick off our first of many Christmas goodies for the listeners? Heck yeah! Oh, we got a we got a. We're going to be talking the movie Scrooge from 1988, a, a classic, uh, let's say a modern classic adaptation of the Charles Dickens Christmas Carol. And I got us a very special guest for this episode. Please welcome from uh, Disorder and the Real Fans Network, Mr. Michael Lyons. Michael, how you doing? Hey, Jared. Good to be here with both of you. Melissa, good to be here with you, too. I'm excited to be on here and uh, grateful that you invited me because uh you know, I love talking uh, any Christmas movie of any kind, but like you said, this is a movie that's become a, a modern-day Christmas classic, so um, I'm excited to get into it with both of you. We're, we're happy to have you. Uh, first, uh, before we get started, why don't you uh, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, a lot of the folks in the Real Fans group, which I believe listen to your podcast as well, have probably my voice, uh, Real Fans for real movies. And um, I do co-host uh, another podcast with Andy DiGenova and Hunter Fagan called Disorder, Every Disney Film, where we look at each Disney animated film in chronological order. And hard to believe we started that podcast about, uh, it's going on four years ago now that we started it. And we are almost done. We have just one more movie to go in order. We've got Frozen 2 left. So uh, we've, uh, we've scaled a lot of mountains there with that podcast. Um, beyond that, I, I am a freelance writer and um, I have a blog, a screensaver, a retro review of TV shows and movies of yesteryear, which is at screensaverblog.blogspot.com. And I contribute to other uh, movie websites that are out there like Animation Scoop, which is all about animation, which is at animationscoop.com. Uh, Originally a, a native of New York, currently living in Florida right now. Been in Florida for about 20 years where we think the weather today was frightful, but the rest <laughs> of the country laughs at us as our high today was 55 degrees and everybody was ready to break out their flannels. But um, we can't complain much because by Thursday we're back up into the 
70s, which the rest of the country doesn't want to hear at this time of year. So that's a little bit about me. <laughs> just, just, a, just a light jacket on those 70 degree days. Light jacket. Oh, yeah. People love people down here love when they have to break out the jackets. They're like, oh, look, it's our quote unquote winter. <laughs> I had to turn I had to turn the AC down to 75. <laughs> I know. How can we ever survive bringing all the plants and the pets? <laughs> well, Michael, we're happy to have you here. And I can vouch I've been been close to a day one disorder Disney listener, and I, I stood by you through those uh, package films. And even though you cra- even though you crapped on uh, Great Mouse Detective, I still kept on listening. <laughs> well, thank you. And man, if you, we should have like special bonus points for uh, listeners who made it through those package films with us because that was uh, that was a struggle. And yeah, you know, it's so funny you talk about Great Mouse Detective, and we've gotten feedback from other movies that may not have been our favorites, and. It's been so interesting doing the podcast because you realize that every Disney movie is somebody's favorite Disney movie, you know? So it's it's just been been really interesting where you think, well, this movie I don't have strong feelings about. And then you hear feedback where someone's like, I grew up with that movie and it means the world to me. So that's been very eye-opening doing the podcast for sure. It's not it's not my number one favorite, but I think me and you bonded over the fact that Robin Hoods are my favorite, just like yours is. Oh heck yeah! Can't get enough Robin Hood. That's another one where some people are like really Robin Hood, you know, and, and then and then I'm like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, like I said, we are talking about the modern Christmas Carol classic. Uh, or the modern Christmas classic Scrooge starring Bill Murray. Um, just to give the IMDb a synopsis of it, it, uh, it is a story about a selfish, cynical television executive who is haunted by three spirits bearing lessons on Christmas Eve. Uh, it was directed by Dick Donner and it came out November 23rd, 1988. So, um, like the, format we've been doing here lately i think we started this what melissa our killer clown smarter space episode with guy and mikey's when we started this round table format yep because yep, if you stood with us through our first year of the podcast you know melissa and i don't have the attention span to go plot boy by plot boy <laughs> <laughs> so uh again i wrote down some questions and we're gonna go around the panel and discuss and hopefully we get some good discussion out of this i have no doubt we will and it's this should be a good uh this should be a good uh um what am i what's the word i'm thinking of here we got a good uh got a good assortment of uh people associated with this movie because this was the first time melissa had seen the film was for this podcast and michael has you i'm sure you've seen it several times over the last 32 years oh yeah i actually saw it when it first opened and i have a good story about that too oh we get to sit by the fire yes indeed for those of you who who love my stories i both apologize and say get ready (laughs) i am i'm crossing this off my podcast bucket list right now (laughs) and and then uh, while i haven't seen the film as much as michael i have seen it i've been a pretty freaking viewer over the last 10 years so we have a Spectrum was the word I'm thinking of. We have a pretty wide spectrum of uh, viewership of this film. So, uh, getting into the first question, Michael, when was the first time you saw this film? Yeah, so um, I'm a, I'm an older dude. So I was in college when Scrooge uh, came out, um, and 
Uh, I've always loved Christmas Carol. I've been a big fan of the story and the novel by Charles Dickens. And with that, any movie adaptation of Christmas Carol, I'm a big fan of even the weaker adaptations because I just love to see what authors do and how they change up the story. Um, And I remember living in New York at the time, reading in the newspaper, uh, there was a picture of Bill Murray in New York City and they were filming Scrooged Christmas time of 1987 in Manhattan. And it was on one of the pages in the paper, like, you know, celebrities seen around town type of thing. And this was a year prior. And I said, oh, my God, there's going to be an updated version of Christmas Carol, like set in modern times or contemporary times starring Bill Murray. Like, I cannot wait for this. And then uh, about a year later, uh, in September, October, when the trailer started to show before movies, I was I was so excited about this, just being a big Christmas geek myself. But then on top of that, layer in the Christmas Carol fandom and loving Bill Murray, too. He hadn't been in a movie at that point in four years. I was really excited. And uh, about a month before the movie opened, a local radio station had a contest where if you were, I think it was like whatever, the 10th caller or something, when you heard a certain song, you won tickets to a preview screening of Scrooged. So I spent an entire weekend uh, calling over and over and over again and finally got through so that I could see Scrooged about a week before it opened in theaters. So I got to go to a preview screening of it, which I remember vividly. They gave all of us the one sheet poster uh, as a gift when we went into the screening. So that was really cool. Um, And it's always interesting. um, I don't know if either of you have had the opportunity, but it's always interesting to see a movie before critics or audiences uh, get word out about it um, because, you know, I, I remember going to see the movie, loving it. And then when it opened that Thanksgiving weekend, about a week later, I remember reading the critic reviews of it. Some of it, some of them were great, some of them not so great. And then hearing what some of my friends and family's uh, reaction to it uh, was. So um, I just, I, I, and I remember it being around that holiday season. Like I remember very much sticking around unlike movies where now if they open on Thanksgiving weekend, or I should say when movie theaters were still up and running and they would open, um, you know, movie theater, movies seem to go fairly quickly now, but I remember Scrooge hanging around like through Christmas week. And, um, yeah, I have a lot of fond memories of, of seeing this and special memories of seeing it before it, uh, it hit theaters back in the day of 1988. Nice. <laughs> uh, I was just a little bit too young to see it then when it came out. I probably don't want to know, but it's okay. <laughs> I, I've accepted it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I, I, I'm on cloud nine. I finally got to hear a, a Michael Lyons story. <laughs> there, there you go. I promise not to stretch this out to disorder length. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still, it's not so bad. Our Joker episode was three hours long last year. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I could see that for that movie. I can see that. But uh, yeah, I think we're going to end the podcast after tonight. Like, hey, we got a Michael Lyons story. There's nowhere to go <laughs> from here. <laughs> uh, Melissa, when was the first time you saw this film? Well, I first saw this film just uh, just last week. <laughs> wow. Um, I had actually, I had never even heard of the film until last week. Uh, until Jared had mentioned that, oh, we should look at the movie Scrooge. And I was like, okay. 
And yeah, it wasn't one that I had ever heard of before. So, um, so yeah, I watched it, and um, it was re- very different because I'm like the hugest fan of the uh, 1951 version of A Christmas Carol with Alistair Sim, the black and white version. Oh yeah, and I watch that every Christmas Eve. I I. I don't know. It always has to be then. It never can be at any other point in time in December or like any other, even before that. Um, only on Christmas Eve. And like the later in the evening, the better. I, <laughs> I watched the movie and I, I've done that for years. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a different movie and it, I, I didn't know what to expect out of it, but, um, yeah. So yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's a it's a fun film. Oh, when I got your initial reaction off of it, I thought I felt my heart shatter into a million pieces. <laughs> well, I'm I'm being I'm being very nice about it on the show. <laughs> I'm oozing the nice Canadian over here. <laughs> she's playing she's playing stereotype today. <laughs> Well, uh, I haven't seen it as recent as Melissa or as long as Michael, but I've I've seen clips. I'm in my mid 30s, so I've seen clips of it over the last time in the time it's been out. But I've really, I think, probably the first time I sat down and saw it all the way through was probably about a little over five years ago. I think I actually I finally sat down and watched it all the way through, beginning to end. And I have to love it. It's not my favorite. Oh, we'll get in that discussion later. It's not my favorite uh, adaptation of. Uh, Christmas Carol of mine usually goes to Mickey's Christmas Carol when mm. I think of that from uh, 1983 if I'm not mistaken yep so uh, but uh, being a huge fan of Bill Murray and Dick Donner both it seemed like a slam dunk to me and I just loved every minute of it it's got a great cast like even with uh, John Glover Bobcat Goldthwait like guys you don't hear get mentioned a lot when they talk about the film they always want to talk about Bill Murray or uh Carol Kane or uh, the, uh, I'm just going to call him Buster Point Dexter because I can't think of his actual yes, name uh, right now. Uh, David Johansson. David Johansson. Yes. Um, their names get mentioned a lot, but all the, all this talent combined just makes for comedy gold, I believe. Yeah, I agree. And I can see why it is considered like a modern day Christmas classic. So, uh, next question we have for the panel is, how well do you think the characters from the Dickens story are represented? So, like, Frank as Ebenezer Scrooge, or uh, Grace as Bob Cratchit, or her son Calvin as Tiny Tim. Michael, how do you think those characters are represented in this presentation? Yeah, I think they did a really good job uh, kind of assigning each one of these characters a role from uh, the original Christmas Carol story. And I think it's, I, I don't think it's, a, a huge challenge to make a new version of a Christmas Carol that's set in Victorian London when it was originally written um, because the story has been told so much. I think I read somewhere that um, Ebenezer Scrooge ranks up there with like, I think it was either Frankenstein or Dracula and Tarzan is one of the most 
um, adapted characters of literature. Um, so I, I don't think, like, I think if they had said this in Victorian times, it would have been a little bit easier. I think it's more difficult to, to set this in a contemporary setting because there's so much that was around when Dickens wrote the story that isn't around anymore. So, you know, we don't have like a clerk or a Clark that was Bob Cratchit and, you know, there's nothing like a counting house anymore. So how do you bring that into the real world? And I think they did a really good job with that. And I think, um, interesting setting it in the world of television, you know, because, uh, you know, the world of, of entertainment can be always seen as very, cutthroat and we always hear you know stories about entertainment executives so to make the ebenezer scrooge character frank cross who's a you know an entertainment executive and then you know yeah as grace's secretary as bob cratchit i think you know you could also say the same thing of the bobcat goldthwaite character what was it uh, eddie uh, uh loudermilk i remember his last name was i forget the character's first name um but uh, you know he's also a bob cratchit character um, I think they did a really good job with um, Lou Hayward, who was um, Robert uh, Forsyth, I think it was. Uh, John Forsyth. John, sorry. John, John Forsyth. Yes, sorry, John Forsyth, um, you know, who was his previous boss. I think they they did a really good job of bringing the bringing Dickens world into this. And the the additional layer onto that was, you know, here's a character who's a Scrooge character who's in charge of putting on a TV version of Christmas Carol. So it was very meta at times too. And they even refer to that where, um, and I know we'll get into it. We talk about the ghosts, but, um, when Frank Cross says to, uh, the ghost of Christmas past, like, Oh, I know what's supposed to happen now. I'm supposed to look at my past and get all blubbery and emotional and everything. So it was, it was kind of a very interesting, uh, very interesting take on it. I think they did good aligning think they did a good job rather aligning all the characters from dickens into the modern world i agree and uh john forsyth even though he's got like a smaller role as jacob marley i i love the practical effects they use on john uh, on him too oh that's that's a great that whole scene is a great great scene um where he comes in and he's you know he's all the rotted corpse and you know he takes the drink, Bill Murray fires the gun, hangs him out, you know, he hangs Bill Murray out the window. That's a really, really compelling scene. And you were talking about Richard Donner. I mean, that's the kind of scene that he he excels at, right? Because you think about Goonies and the Lethal Weapon movies, like those those kind of big action special effects uh, scenes are, are like all him. Yeah, and, and the practical effects look really, really good. And I think they still hold up pretty well, too. They still look pretty well, too. They don't it doesn't look like it's aged poorly in 32 years. Oh, I agree. So, Melissa, what about you? How do you think the uh, the characters from the story are represented in this film? I think they're they're represented fairly well. Although for me, it was it was a little bit sort of a, a little bit of a challenge to figure out. Like, obviously, Frank, he's like the Ebenezer Scrooge character. But it was kind of tricky for me to figure out, like, oh, okay, this is the character they're representing from the story. It, it didn't seem sort of obvious to me. I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe you know, maybe wasn't paying enough attention. But uh, yeah, it just didn't seem to me like it was sort of clearly represented. But then it was like, okay, everybody has their roles, and this is who they are, and it's just that taken the the modern world. And I think. Um, you know, I think for each of their their roles, I think it all it works. Like the you know the TV executive, yeah, they're a little bit more 
um, like Michael mentioned, like it's more the entertainment industry is more cutthroat. It's a little bit colder. It's you know just let's get this out and done kind of thing. And and that's kind of how it's portrayed in the in the movie where it's just sort of like okay, this is what we're doing, and you know. Um, and like Frank, he's he's really tough on on you know the people initially in the meeting, you know, and they're like, eh, well, we'll show you this, and then we'll show you that, and we're like, eh, like they they just pulled a pin out of a grenade or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they're waiting for like the tick 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 boom. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think it, they they represented each each character um, pretty well, and and I like how. You know, each character represents you know the sort of original character, but it wasn't in the same way as you know in the original film or the original story. is very different. So I think it was um, an interesting take all around for all the the characters. Yeah, um, I'd agree with Bully. I think they're all represented pretty well. And Michael, you mentioned uh, how Bobcat Goldthwait is also a uh, almost like a, a version of uh, Bob Cratchit himself. Cause he, I think he represents more of the Cratchit that we're used to that kind of like bows down to Scrooge, even though he does have the, he does have the, uh, the wherewithal to stand up to Frank and say, Hey, this commercial is going to scare people and all this stuff. And, but then he ends up paying the ultimate price for it. But grace is a nice version of Cratchit is that she doesn't, she stands up to Frank. She doesn't take any crap from him and willing to fight back on him. She ain't going to bow down to him. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a great point. And um, yeah, she, you almost feel like Grace knows how to handle Frank, you know, and how to probably, uh, we never see it in the movie, but you get the feeling like as his secretary, she probably helps other people handle Frank too, who have to deal with them. Whereas, um, you know, Elliot is very much the uh, the Bob Col- Bobcat Goldway character, very much the innocent who just, you know, falls into that one moment of, um, you know, he gets lulled into that false sense of security of, oh, I can actually provide Frank some feedback. And you know, that doesn't work out too well for him. <laughs> Not at all. And I would say hilarity ensues for him throughout the rest of the film. Oh, uh, yeah. And I, I do like how they incorporate a little bit of the New York New Yorker aspect into at least with the ghost of Christmas past with uh, the cab driver and everything, all that stuff. So I did like, I do like that, uh, that little nice little twist to it. So. Yeah, I think, I think he's really great. I think all of the ghosts are really well done. Yeah. I'd say Carol Kane's probably one of my favorite adaptations of, of a uh, gross Christmas present like I, I, her segment's a little goofy because it doesn't look it fits in but it's she's still entertaining to watch oh yeah this 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 warped version of the nutcracker fairy right <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I was talking about that with my friend of the day i go it doesn't feel like it really fits in but at the same time she does say well the truth can hurt sometimes while she's beating the crap out of him, so yeah. like, okay, okay, I guess that's how, I guess that's how they tie it in. <laughs> the bitch hit me with a toaster. <laughs> you know what's funny? I remember. Um, I don't know if either of you remember Premier Magazine. Uh, it was kind of like Entertainment Weekly or one of these. It was all movies, 
Um, and they did a whole article on uh, Scrooge when it was coming out. And in it, they talked about how um, Carol Kane was afraid to hit Bill Murray during these scenes. And Bill Murray was kind of egging her on to do it so that it would look realistic. So that scene where she grabs the bottom of Bill Murray's lip um, and pulls it down, uh, she actually tore the inside of his gum. And it like they had to shut down filming or something for a couple of days. And I don't know if he had to go for surgery or what happened, but like it, it really kind of did damage to him. And now anytime you watch the movie, if you look at the very end of that shot, you can see Bill Murray kind of like rubbing his tongue on the inside of his mouth after she takes her hand away uh, from it. So I've never been able to unsee that after reading that story. <laughs> yeah. I remember hearing he got hurt, and I had to refresh my memory on how it was. And in her defense, he did ask for it. So that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that that must have hurt. Like, oh man, oh. I can't imagine. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh. Oh, it makes me think of like other uh, other. It's just like a on set, like a listen on Kevin Smith's podcast, Fat Man on Batman, how. Burt Ward went to the hospital like three or four times in the first week of filming the first episode of Batman 66. Oh, geez. Wow. Yeah. Really? Just from like the stunts and things like that? Yeah. Well, the, the problem with it was that they got a stunt double that looks nothing like him. So <laughs> he had to do some of his own stunts for some of those opening shots. <laughs> wow. I think he even said the episode, like, well, why did you get a stunt double? It doesn't look like me. While we're on the subject of Carol Kane, uh, Michael, what are, your, some of your, what are some of your favorite moments from the film? Yeah, I love uh, the whole opening of this movie. Uh, the, the fake TV shows, the, the Night the Reindeer Died. Um, Robert Goulet's Down Home Cajun Christmas, Father Loves Beaver. Um, <laughs> I, I remember seeing that in the theater the first time, and both myself and the entire audience were hysterical. But there was also this, there was this laughter of like, what the heck are we watching? I thought this was a Christmas carol. Like, where is this going? Um, and then to have them pull back and reveal that, you know, it's all of them in a boardroom, uh, you know, watching... Uh, coming attractions for for their shows uh, is even more hysterical and how over the top and very like it almost seems like something out of one of the airplane movies or one of the leslie nielsen movies like with lee majors coming in to save uh save santa in the workshop that's that's pretty brilliant um i love i love that scene uh just from a comedy standpoint and then at the end of the movie i think and and again i think this is a great richard donner sequence the scene where um during Christmas future where Frank is in the coffin um, and his feet are on fire. He's being, he's being burned and he's trying to, he's banging on the coffin, trying to escape. And uh, you know, I, I'm sure there's some magic to how they did that shot. And uh, I'm still fascinated by how they accomplished that. But I think that's a really, really powerful and very dramatic scene in you know, up to that point, what's been at times a pretty, you know, pretty black, uh, dark Christmas comedy. So on the two ends of the spectrum, like that, that opening and that scene with Frank in the coffin are two standouts for me. Oh, excellent. Um, well, Melissa, what about you? 
Um, I really like when uh, Frank, he, he meets the first ghost, or the second ghost in the cab. Is that how it goes? Uh, for, I'd be old, if you count Jacob Marley, it'd be the second ghost, but uh, Ghost of Christmas Past is the cabbie. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that when he first meets him, and they go to his Frank's childhood home, and they're going to go through the door, and the first he goes through the door like a ghost does, and, <laughs> and Frank just, boom, slams into the door. And then, of course, he starts laughing, like, you know, he just never gets tired of that, you know. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I do, and there's two, two more I, I like, and like the, when the, uh, drinking the Bacardi and it's just leaking all over the place. It yeah. just like, spurts out everywhere, and then, <laughs> and then, um, and then yeah, at the end, like in the coffin, and the like that is um, quite the scene. Um, you know, for like in the you know original story, it's you know he's seeing his grave, which is enough, right? But this is just a really sort of amped up version of that of him just i want to live i want to live you know and mm-hmm. so yeah i, I really um I, I like that scene too it's very powerful i mean you know considering mm-hmm. you know this movie up to this point has it's had its you know more dramatic moments but nothing nothing so dark as that so that's a real standout i think yeah. as well and- for it being kind of like it's, it is a little bit of a of a darker story, but it's also a little bit lighthearted as well. So to come up to that, it's like everything else is super lighthearted, and <laughs> so you get to that yeah. scene yep. where it's just like, oh, it just hits you right in the face. <laughs> it does. Well, yep. Yeah, you got to have that moment where Scrooge, or in this instance, Frank, sees the error of his ways after so much. So. Uh, like Melissa, my one of my favorite segments has to be uh, is it David Johansson Ghost of Christmas Past as a cabbie, and it's it and it's more along the sense of how he cracks himself up, how he's always laughing, and like when they first get to the past and they drive through the car, go back to Jersey, you moron, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or even uh, when they're at the taping of the Frisbee show and he's just sitting there cracking himself up, like. <laughs> Like he's just a little kid in the crowd. It's a bone, you lucky <laughs> dog. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I can't. I can't go too. I can't. I can't go full bore on the on the voice right now. <laughs> but uh, it's how how much he David Johansson cracks himself up as uh, as the Ghost of Christmas Past. And did you you guys read IMDb? Who was originally supposed to? Who they originally wanted to play the Ghost of Christmas Past? No. No. Uh, Sam Kinison, apparently, according to IMDb. Oh wow, that would have been different. Oh yeah, that, I, I I'd like to see that. But uh, but uh, David Johansson said he got the job because of his friendship with Bill Murray. Yeah, because wasn't Bill Murray in? Uh, if you've ever seen the video for um, "Hot Hot Hot," um, the Buster Poindexter song that was a big hit in the '80s, Bill Murray's in the video. Just randomly oh. pops up in the video. Yeah, I, I was while I was, I was uh, virtually watching this with a friend. So me and her were texting back and forth while we we're watching this film. And we got to that part. I go, "Do you know who that guy is?" No. You, know, you, you ever heard the song "Hot, Hot, Hot"? And I sent her the video. <laughs> it's just, no way. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the video That's in awesome. a long time, but I'm, but I'm well aware of the song. 
But uh, another favorite moment of mine is is the moments we see of Bobcat Goldthwait throughout the film after he's been fired of him just trying to drink the booze and yes. donate blood. And then by the end when he's got the shotgun and he's taken over the, the, the control room, it's Bobcat. Bobcat Goldthwait is pretty damn funny when he's given like the right material to be funny in. And like this in the movie freak with Alex winter, where he plays like a sock puppet freak. I've never, but, never uh, seen that. I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Oh, it's a it's a rare gem. It's it's uh, I would say it's like an acquired humor because it's it's got that weird humor because you got Alex Winter fresh off of Bill Ted, and then you yeah. got Mister T as the bearded lady, and uh, oh my god, <laughs> uh, Randy Randy Qu- Randy Quaid is the main villain, and uh, Bobcat Goldthwait's in it, and uh, who else is in it? Uh, Brooke Shields. It's got like a very '90s cast to it. Oh wow. And it's rumored that Keanu Reeves does have a cameo as Ortiz, the dog boy, but I don't think it's ever been confirmed or denied. But huh. it's it's definitely a comedy for an acquired sense of humor. Sounds like it, but now it's on my list. <laughs> well, if you don't like it, don't blame me. I will no. warn you. I'm <laughs> like. <laughs> I'm like at the guy at the beginning of Frankenstein. Well, I warned you. <laughs> uh, anybody else have any favorite moments before we move on? No, I mean, there's there's a lot. I, I agree with, you know, uh, I think what both of you said. Like, I think each one of the ghosts has a really great, their own standout moment in it, including Lou Hayward, the the Jacob Marley ghost that I think could definitely be seen as some of the best moments in the film. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's swing to the other side. And uh, is there anything from the film you thought could have used a second take, Michael? You know, a scene that always seems strange to me is uh, the scene where Frank walks into his office and his brother is in there, um, and you just get a, a fleeting glimpse of Frank's office you see he has the actual definition of what a cross is up on the the wall you know and and his brother's on the exercise bike and it i don't know if it maybe it needed a second take or i think it just needed to be longer or something like it doesn't last long enough um and i get the whole um the whole idea of you know we we have to you know get out of the the building and show a scene outside and uh they walk by um the street musicians and it's pretty cool. All the cameos who are the street musicians as well. Paul Schaefer and miles. Uh, it was a miles Davis, I think is out yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and we get a nice, we get, we get a little bit of the relationship between Frank and his brother there, but, um, I, I don't know. I almost feel like the scene in the office could have either been completely cut or it needed to be longer. So I don't know, not so much a second take, but there's just something that always seemed off about that, that quick scene in the office. Yeah. I never really thought about that. Except that scene just kind of comes and goes and need that transition to set up the brother. Like, Oh, all of a sudden we're outside. Yeah. It was just, it's, it's, just, and it's even an odd cut when they go outside too. Like um, he says something back to his brother. Like, you know, the great thing about life is if you get to do it all over again, or, you know, or what is it on the way up, you get to meet the same people on the way down or something. And then, he leans his head into the sink, Bill Murray, to drink out of the sink, and they cut to the street outside. It's just an odd cut, you know, and, and I'm sure there was more to the scene, 
uh, that they cut, but it always just seemed a little odd to me. And Melissa, what about you? I would, I would agree um, with the like the office scene. Like it just seems sort of like a little bit like a filler to, or like ha- sort of having a reason to go transition to the outside. Um, it doesn't really fit, but I think it should have been maybe a little bit longer to make it make a little bit more sense because <laughs> it's so sudden and quick and yeah. it's sort of like what what was that like he <laughs> you almost have to like you know go back and watch the scene again and be like oh this is sort of what's happening but yeah i i think it either i agree it needs to either be a longer or b completely cut because it doesn't really make much sense and then has that awkward transition to the outside so yeah, that that's one scene that that could have could have used a bit of work. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I might have to be the the unpopular one here, and I'd say my if I think any could use, anything could use a second take, it'd be the scene at the end of the film when uh, uh, Frank is given his after Frank has seen the light and he's interrupting the live broadcast, and it to me it just seems like he's rambling on and on and on, and it. It says that uh, like Bill Murray was known to improvise most of his lines on this set, and it 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 seems like wherever they left in the final cut of the film, when he's talking from the time he comes out of the set to the time the credits roll, is it, it seems like it's different speeches like stringed together, and it makes it feels like it makes no sense. So it seems like one of those times where guys like the improv that's cool but it just needs to be reined in a little bit like okay let's try this again let's try to get a little uh, continuity here with what we're discussing here like if i can give anything praise in that segment it's like hey he got to kiss one of the solid gold dancers like hey <laughs> props props there bill murray <laughs> That's that, that, that's brilliant improvisation right there but uh but but I, but i think it just needed not that it's not a bad speech, but it just seems like he's all over the map and what he's trying to talk mm-hmm. about. Yeah, he's got he's got kill for time for Claire to get down to the down to the station and what have you, but it just seems like it's kind of all over the place and then that's and like I say, improv can be done well. But then if it's not reined in, then we get like a Jim Carrey playing the Riddler situation where it's like, Okay, we need to pump the brakes here a little bit here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I I did read throughout the years, and I don't know if it's ever been fully confirmed that that whole ending scene was just completely improvised by Bill Murray. And and I agree, he gets some really good lines in there, um, but uh, it it almost seems like he gave them so much that they didn't know what to cut. You know, to your point, so um, yeah. it kind of goes off in in different directions. Yeah, it does. And it, it really, it, it could have been a lot shorter. But again, like you said, like, they probably didn't know what to cut because he's just, he, they let him go and he's going on and on and on. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's, you know, it should have been a little bit more focused and not so much, you know, just let him have at her with the improv. Like, I think it just should have been reined in just that little bit and I think it would have been perfect. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, one of the few one of the few times improv improving so much can come back and bite you in the butt a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, it's kind of hard. Like, okay, where do I cut? Where do I cut? Well, 
Yeah. I think like yeah. when when it comes to improving in movies, I think it has to come down to like a, a line or something like something really short and sweet. So then you're not going overboard, but it's just sort of a natural like line or something that somebody says, and then that's kind of where it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I agree, and it's it needs to feel. It needs to feel genuine too. Like it, it, it does need to feel natural, and you know, it, it almost needs to feel like you look at it and say, "I bet that was improvised." But it needs to feel very much uh, of the character and of the moment too. Yeah, agreed. I, I look back to uh, one of the last episodes of uh, "Please Rewind the Forty Old Virgin," how they talked about how how much of that movie was improv and how was it Jamie and all them theorized that that's kind of ruined comedy since then. It's like, everybody's trying to out improv each other out, outdo each other with their comedy. So. Yeah, no, that's true. And then it can also lead to some pretty, you know, pretty unfocused films. Like if you watch some movies where, uh, you know, I, I love, there's an, there's an, Older movie that's out there, uh, Smokey and the Bandit, Burt Reynolds, and uh, probably his most famous movie. Everyone loves that movie. <laughs> I, I hadn't seen it for years, and then I watched it again. And right before I watched it, I think I read on IMDb that they pretty much had no script. And they just let them, like, you know, kind of make up the dialogue as they were going along while they filmed these car chases. And when you watch the movie now, you're like, oh, I can totally see that. Because this movie at times seems very unfocused and i think you know that's that's kind of one of the dangers of of too much improvisation so i think you know jamie and and tim and guy were were right when they when they said that yeah you just won melissa's heart by name dropping smoking the bandit too there you go i love that movie (laughs) for all it's for all it's faults i love that movie it's it's such a fun film that's that's most about it no i agree it's iconic too yeah it really is. Speaking of iconic, uh, where does this rank in your favorite adaptations of the original Charles Dickens story, Michael? Um, so I, these are all really great questions. Um, this one in particular, uh, you forced me to do something I've never had to do, which was create a top 10 list of all of my <laughs> Christmas Carol movies. Um, so I, I Scrooge is definitely in there, but it's down... It's down near the bottom at number eight uh, for me. Um, my number one is a movie called Scrooge uh, from 1970, which was a musical uh, version of, of Christmas Carol with um, Albert Finney as um, Ebenezer Scrooge. It's a great songs. It's like a big, big budget Hollywood musical from the end of that era of, you know, like uh, Mary Poppins and Sound of Music and Oliver and all those uh all those big uh, musicals. And then um, two is the version that Melissa talked about with Alistair Sim. Um, and then for me from there, I love the Patrick Stewart version. That's my number three. Um, there's an animated version by a director named Richard Williams who directed the animation and who framed Roger Rabbit. It's about a half hour version. For me, that's number four. Number five is Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, uh, which was a TV special from the early sixties. Um, which is wonderful. And actually the very first TV Christmas special ever produced too. And then number six, Mickey's Christmas Carol uh, for me. And then seven is Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, Eight is Scrooged. Um, Nine is another uh, black and white version 
from 1938 with an actor named Reginald Owen. And then number 10 is the Jim Carrey uh, motion capture version from 2009, Disney's Christmas Carol. So Scrooge is on there, but down at number eight for me. And, and thank you, Jared, because now I have to rank uh, my Christmas Carol. So that's great. <laughs> Welcome. I always like I always like to push my guests to do the best they can. <laughs> <laughs> I had homework. <laughs> <laughs> we try to put you to work. That's right, but it was good homework. I'll think of another adaptation to have you rank next time. <laughs> <laughs> next next show we will rank all of the smoking the bandit movies. We'll do that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> If, it's, if number one's not smoking the bandit, you're out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I like I name dropped the Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol because that's in, that Mr. Magoo's in my top five. So that's I I have for the longest time it was always that and Mickey's for me. But, yeah, uh, I I do enjoy Scrooge more. I do more than I enjoy uh, more than I enjoy Mr. Magoo though. I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you like Mr. Magoo because it never gets any love. You never really hear about it anymore. It's not even brought up in conversations when people talk about TV Christmas specials either. So, um, you know, it's it, it. I would say it's probably a very underrated uh, version of Christmas Carol. That's why we haven't gotten any Razzleberry dressing That's in right. the stores around this time of year. <laughs> See, and knowledge like this is why I will die alone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny. You say Razzleberry dressing. I immediately know what that's from. But somebody yeah. asked me, how much is in your checking account right now? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I, I only know the important information, like Razzleberry dressing. <laughs> oh. Guys, like us, we have to stick together, Michael. There you go. <laughs> I think I remember you and were you on the, was it the first Real Fans Christmas special that you guys talked about, Magoo? Um, it was either the first or the second that we talked about it. Yeah. So I remember Scotty probably bringing up raspberry dressing. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure if anybody were to bring it up, it'd be Scotty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Melissa, what about you? Where does this rank in your adaptations? Well, um, you guys have your, your top ten list. I have a top three because that's how many Christmas Carol movies I've seen. <laughs> 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 so <laughs> I, I kind of realized that recently I said, oh I've only seen three of them so anyway my, my top three like shortest list ever <laughs> is my, num- my, my number one being the 1951 A Christmas Carol black and white version with Alistair Sim that is my like absolute favorite movie ever um and then number two is a Muppet Christmas Carol, mm. and number three would be Scrooged. There you go. Nice. Well, I I feel like I'm on the I'm, I'm the unprepared one because I didn't do a list at all. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just know about where things rank in my head. So my number one, I tipped my hand earlier. It's Mickey's Christmas Carol because I just grew up with that. Yeah. But uh, I keep it as Scrooge is number two. And then I'd probably say number, th- if I had to round like three, probably Mr. Magoo. Uh, cause just because those are 
Magoo and Mickey are such nostalgia for me. I really hang on to that nostalgia of everything. Yeah. For growing up with those, and I'm I'm glad Disney Plus has added Mickey's Christmas Carol to it, so I can watch it more often. Now, so I have to watch a half buffered version of it on YouTube every Christmas. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of now, I now I save that for uh, Muppet Christmas, uh, Muppet Family Christmas. Now I have to watch that on YouTube. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, uh. I could have bought a bootleg DVD of it at a comic book convention a few years ago, but I didn't pull the trigger. Was either buy that. I ended up buying uh, the Adams Family musical from Broadway, but I either could have bought that, Muppet Family Christmas, or Song of the South. I'm like, uh. Wow. Decisions. Man, those decisions. Are like, yeah, three hard to find uh, things right there. Man. Well, if he, comes, fun- if he comes back again, I'll probably pull the trigger on the other two. Yeah, I, I know. It's such a shame that the, the Muppet Family Christmas has not been around in its entirety. I know that sections of it have been taken out because. I don't know if it's music rights or, or what the what the deal is. I think it's two of the songs. Yeah, that's a shame. I don't I don't know which ones, but it's interesting too. Ranking, uh, I was just thinking, ranking your favorite version of Christmas Carol is very much like ranking your favorite Disney movie because I think it has to do a lot with like what's the one you grew up with, what's the one you know like that that you relate to. Uh, the most, so I think that they're they're very su- subjective in terms of your own personal feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, Michael and I also have the benefit of being from that generation where I shared this video online a few weeks ago from the Nostalgia Critic a few days ago, where we come. Michael and I come from a generation where these companies did not give a crap about scaring kids either. Oh no, yeah. <laughs> so I I came in I came in around the time of uh, I was born in '84, so like Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective. So I came in that yeah. that time of Disney and the in the height of Don Bluth and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a tough time to grow up with Disney. Yeah, <laughs> but it makes you a little bit. I talking my I was talking to my friend Mikey about it at work. We feel a little bit tougher growing up with those movies, though, like watching The Secret of Nim. At a young age, it can feel a little bit tougher at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, kids' movies were darker in in the eighties, even in the seventies too. When you look at uh, a movie like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you know, and and then yeah, into the into the eighties for sure, especially at Disney. Um, you know, we talked about Return to Oz over the summer on the Real Fans podcast, and that's a pretty dark Disney film. And then there's been a lot of conversation on the the Real Fans page about One Magic Christmas. Um, which is probably the most tragic and depressing Christmas movie ever made. And it was made by Disney in the 1980s. So they didn't care back then. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. So this question I thought of randomly while watching the film, is there more to the relationship between Claire and Frank that's not mentioned in the film? And the reason why I thought of this is because it goes back to when they're in the past at the Frisbee taping. She's just so quick to bring up that they need to take a a break from each other. Mm. So that made me wonder, was there things going on, let's see, between them meeting to that that first split up? Was there more more, uh, rough waters in that time that didn't lead on to in the film, Michael, do you think? 
Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a good point. And I think it would have been interesting to see maybe even like a montage of Frank getting consumed by work um, and drifting away from Claire, because I feel like in a lot of the adaptations of Christmas Carol, we sometimes see that uh, a little bit. I know in uh, the version I was talking about, Scrooge, the musical with Albert Finney, there's a whole big musical number where they show uh, Scrooge and um, you know his girlfriend Isabel and how well things are going in their um, in their relationship, and then you know we slowly see it fall apart. So it is kind of um, it's very quick. I think it was more an efficiency for storytelling piece. How um, you know they have the invite to go over to friend's house, and uh, Lou invites Frank uh, out to dinner that night, and Frank just suddenly tells Claire like you know we. We can't go. This is very important. It's the president of the company, and he, you know, he he makes plans last minute. Um, so I, I think, you know, to to your point, Jared, it would have been interesting to see a little bit more in there. I do, I do really like uh, Bill Murray and Karen Allen's um, chemistry in the movie. I think they're really good together, and I think Karen Allen is kind of the underrated MVP of this movie because. Bill Murray is such a big personality and the character is such a, a loud character and big character in this movie that she needed to play the complete opposite and play it very soft and quieter and kinder. Um, and sometimes that's tougher to do than playing the, you know, the, the louder character. But uh, yeah, it, it would have been interesting to see a little bit more of their relationship develop and then how it kind of falls apart through the years. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Melissa, what about you? Yeah, I think um, I, I think it would have been kind of interesting to see more into the relationship because you kind of like especially you know like you yeah him suddenly making plans and when they already have plans that they've been making for two months and so yeah it just you really see that okay the relationship is sort of already strained and immediately when she's like we need to take a break we need to whatever because she recognizes that. You know, he's very focused on work and seeing success. And especially when, oh, this higher up is inviting him to dinner and whatever. And so, oh, he needs to go to that because that's, you know, his moving up and more into success or something. And, and you know, him caring a little bit more about work than about, you know, his relationship that's like that he has. And, you know, it would have been kind of nice to, to sort of see a little bit before of their relationship up until what you see now. Um, and then how that just, you know, obviously completely deflates. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of, um, yeah, I, I wish there, there would have been a little bit more to that, but I, but I, I think it works for the film. You, you do get a sense of, of, you know, who each character is and, you know, kind of, you see how they, they could have, um, you can kind of theorize yourself, like how, you know, they, they just ended up just separating after, you know, of, of being together. And, you know, they, it seemed to start out pretty happy and then it just, you know, fell apart. So, but yeah, I, I think it works for the film and just, yeah, for time constraints, because I'm sure it would have been a much longer movie if, <laughs> if they did, you know, some sort of um, montage to that or something. But uh but yeah, I think I think it works for the film, but it also would have been nice to see a little bit digging a little bit deeper into their relationship. And it'd be, it'd be better than, than it'd be better than getting a huge exposition dump too. 
her just sitting there listening off reasons why they need to take a break. But I think she gives us a little insight, like, hey, you've been consumed with work lately. and Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, even in uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol, you get a little bit of that, too, with uh, Daisy, oddly, playing uh, Isabel to Scrooge's Ebenezer Scrooge uh, while he's sitting there counting the money. And what does he put a mortgage up on her house or... Oh, uh, that's right. Before Clayton forecloses on the mortgage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you you get that little bit of a peek behind them of how they fall apart. And uh, I don't really know. I can't remember the Mr. Magoo one very well at all because it's been a a while. But I think that one's a mostly exposition because it's because the almost if I told you that Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, it's it's more put in the format of a play. It's Mr. Magoo playing Ebenezer Scrooge in a play or stage adaptation of it. So I can't remember if it's just like them sitting on the couch, just talking about why they're splitting up or I think it's, I think it's a musical number. Like she talks about how they've drifted away and then um, she sings a, a ballad uh, after the song <clears throat> or from the song. It kind of leads into the conversation of her, her walking out. And I don't remember the Jim Carrey one well enough, Felix. I haven't seen it since the theater. Yeah, I can't remember that one either. Uh, now that you say it, um, yeah, no, I can't remember. I'm trying to rack my brain. Yeah, well, I guess like I guess just going to use like a little more insight. Not a huge exposition dump of why they're splitting up, but uh, just a little more insight than oh, you've been a little stressed out at work and maybe. A little bit of his uh, behavior change, and also going on the relationship, like they're pretty quick to take. She's pretty quick to take him back multiple times throughout the movie, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Which, yeah, although maybe, maybe she, you know, had some hope that maybe he would change a little bit. You know, like that maybe if she, you know, a little bit of times passed, maybe he's changed. You know, maybe. She could, you know, change him to maybe when they back a little bit to when they, you know, first met. I don't know. Um, but, yeah. But it, it does seem a little bit quick. Like, you'd think she would be a little more hesitant just knowing him and knowing how focused he is on his work and things like that. So, it just, yeah, it seems like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll take you back. I'll take oh, yeah. You back. Like, well, pump the brakes a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they were trying to show just how kind she is, you know, that like, cause I think she says that, you know, her nickname for him is, for him is lumpy. And there's a line where she says, you know, that was the scared lumpy I heard last night. Cause he tries to blow it off and say, Oh no, it was something I ate or whatnot. Um, and I think, you know, it is very quick, but I think, you know, they were just trying to set her up as being like overtly kind. Yeah, that's true. They do. They do set her up as being like this, this genuine salt of the earth person. Yeah. And and then it kind of makes it a little. It's the Ghost of Christmas future where they show her as turning into him. Yeah. Which even even seems kind of eh, well. It doesn't seem as out of place as Carol Kane does, but it still seems like wow, that's quite the. That took quite the turn there, didn't it? From her being this happy-go-lucky, uh, well, she runs the homeless shelter. Yeah. And uh, so even how she's, all, all these problems are coming to her and she's just so nice about it. Okay, hold on, we'll take care of it. And 
Frank's like, oh, you know, you got to fire these people and get them out of here. And But she's, maybe she just, they just build her up to be the salt of earth person. She just sees the good in Frank's character. Like this is, she knows this Frank and, or maybe she's just excited to be to take him back because nobody else can do the Kama Sutra moves with her out of the book. <laughs> like that Bill Murray can. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> And it can't be an episode unless I break Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> I do like I do like that. That gets a call back though when he's rambling on at the end. The karma suture gets a call back during his long-winded speech. <laughs> That's right. <yeah. laughs> we can do this without any physical or emotional damage. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, here's here's the question I proposed. Does he tell Claire about kissing the solid gold dancer, or did she see it on TV? Oh, good call. Um, she probably saw it on TV, and knowing Claire, she's such a forgiving person that she just forgives him for it and says, "Oh, yeah. that's lumpy. <laughs> that's lumpy, and you can't even you can't even see your nipples." <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy is really looking. <laughs> that's a good line I love that that's line, line. <laughs> these guys are really looking <laughs> another line I like is when the, the stage chain comes out and they you know, staple the antlers to the mouse yes. <laughs> don't you dare oh I'd never do that <laughs> more of a more of a Karen Allen of very saving the world right there. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> so is there anybody else in 1988 you could see playing Frank, Michael? Yeah, this was this was good to think through because I was trying to think what actors were pretty prominent in 1988 cuz immediately when you think of it, you think of an actor but you're like, "Ah, they're kind of really a big thing now." Um and from a comedy perspective, um, I thought of Danny DeVito. I thought he would have really been interesting as, as Frank Cross, and, and that would have, I think, worked really good on the comedic side of things. Tom Hanks was big at this time, but I think Tom Hanks is such a, he's always seen as such a nice guy, you know, mm -hmm. where like Danny DeVito always had an edge to him, even from his early days on television and Taxi, much like Bill Murray does. I think he'd be really good. And then from a more dramatic perspective, if they would have went like pure drama, um, I would have loved to have seen Harrison Ford because um, he did have that ability, even in those days in the 80s, like coming off of Star Wars and at the end of the ending of the Indiana Jones movies to play kind of a, a grumpy, you know, curmudgeon, edgier person in a, in a good way. So um, those were the two that I that I thought of. Yeah, Dan DeVito would be a good choice, and you could tie it into his character Frank from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, I never did. watched that, but I've heard I've heard about him on it. Oh, 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 God! It's 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 in the way he plays his character on that show. You can you can see like it being Frank reverting back to Frank again, almost. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it's it's a it's a. It's got some dark humor, not gonna admit it. It's, it's hilarious, but it's dark humor. Yeah. Well, I like the, I like your choices there. That'd be uh, 
Harrison Ford would be a good choice, and he was mostly action at that, or just getting the action stuff more. And, and yeah, this and was about the time when Tom Hanks was in his, in his comedy roles too. Yeah, and, and you know Harrison Ford, I thought of because of um, there was a movie made around this time called Working Girl. Oh, uh, yeah. Harrison Ford and yeah. Melanie Griffith and Sigourney Weaver, and you know he played that executive type role. It wasn't as you know callous as as Frank Cross, but. Um, I just, you know, thinking of what he looked like in that movie, I could see him in this role. Yeah. Good point. And to say that with that bear on this time, and also this is also in the height of Tom Hanks doing his comedy stuff, too. So, yeah, he could have been good in that. Like around this time, he'd be doing what, Dragnet or? Yeah, Big? Dragnet and, and The Burbs. And I think a year later was Turner and Hooch. Um, so, think- yeah, this would have fit in. Uh, big had to be about this time too. Oh, it? big, yeah, big was the same year. You're absolutely right. Yep. Tom Hanks, classic. I grew up with. There you go. I don't know how many people would have accepted him in an Ebenezer Scrooge role, though. You know, that really would have been playing against type for him. Yeah, I think. Been I, much I think. Of a I think now they could. Yeah, I think now you're right. Yeah. Because he's, he's proved he can do so many things. So, <laughs> uh, Melissa, what about you? Who do you cast as Frank if you can get Bill Murray? It, it's hilarious that um, Michael chose who he chose because we're on basically the same page. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Um, specifically with Harrison Ford. Um, just like, is, and I actually had to think about, like, okay, who could play this character? And I I actually, it took me a minute, but then I immediately thought Harrison Ford, based on Working Girl, that hmm. being that sort of executive office type kind of guy. And then, like, I've seen him in other, other films besides um, Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And so I could totally see him as that character, if they were going to, like you said, like, go that more sort of dramatic way. Um, but I think he could, he could have pulled that off very well. Um, cause he can, he can kind of play that sort of character. Um, and so, yeah, I, I totally saw him. Um, and I think, I think Danny DeVito is also a good choice based on like comedy and then also him being sort of a, the authority figure too. Cause yeah. he can, he can play that comedy and the authority figure very well. Um, he, he pulls that off. In a, in a brilliant way so um but yeah specifically for me Lee harrison ford would have been i think perfect for that role nice oh i think i'm gonna go against the grain here <laughs> <laughs> um i have to say the first choice i thought of was uh steve martin and i might be because i just watched planes trains automobiles a few days ago right before watching scrooge yeah. again so yeah <laughs> but uh but when I thought of Steve Martin, I thought of the time, I thought of the scene when he's getting in the cab to go to the awards ceremony, and he's just being this jerk to that, uh, the older lady, oh, hey, ma'am, you dropped this package, and takes <coughs> her cab and gives her the finger and drives off. I just, <laughs> I thought of that, and Steve Martin was an old SNL sketch, well, excuse me. <laughs> I could see him, because he doesn't really play that jerk role playing strange automobiles, it's just more of a more of a fuss budget, I think. How I think Andy put it when you guys did that episode. Yeah, Michael. yeah, that's 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 a good call. He's more uptight than anything else in planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah, 
but he could, he could take that just like a turn that screw just a little bit further and uh, probably play like this jerk full of himself executive that wants to do it. And he can do some of that stuff with a straight face and pull off some pull off a lot of the comedy uh, that comes with the role too. And um, the second one I thought of, I just thought of while you guys were talking, and I was thinking of John Ritter. Oh wow! And, yeah, and the reason the reason why I think John Ritter is I've been I've been on a huge I think I told you both I've been on a huge binge of Nostalgia Critic lately, mm. and I just watched uh, an episode he did on Problem Child, which is a movie I grew up with too from oh yeah the, from nineteen ninety, and John Ritter was in that, and he said that John Ritter was trying to phase out of how he was in uh, Three's Company, being like the goofy goofball and get some more of the serious stuff. In. And I go think, well, maybe this could have been if you had stuck to this instead of maybe it from 1990, that maybe this could be like, he'll maybe him dipping his toe. Like, Hey, I could do this. A little, I could do this a little more serious role, but still be funny that what we would see later in his life before he unfortunately passed away, that he can do some of that, those heavier roles. Maybe that was just a, that was just the spur of the moment thing with John Ritter, but Steve Martin was definitely would be my one of my first choices for 1988 at least. Yeah, I think those are two good calls. I think the John Ritter one's really interesting too because, you know, um, unfortunately we never got to see him do a lot of that more dramatic acting. He he had that small role in Sling Blade with uh, uh, Billy Bob Thornton. Um, where uh, I think he he and Billy Bob Thornton were friends, so I think that's why he was in the movie. But yeah, to your point, a lot of times he was in the more, uh, you know, the more sitcom uh, weight uh, comedy roles, and it would have been interesting to see him in something like this. And even see, like, he's another person where he just seemed like such a nice guy. It would have it would have been interesting to see him do some of the things that Frank Cross has to do in the movie. Yeah, and uh, even in the Nostalgia Critic episode I watched of Problem Child, how you could see him how he's trying to be that he's not trying to be uh I can't think of his name for right now for Three's Company. He's he's not oh, trying uh, to be that character. Jack Tripper, right? Yeah, Jack Tripper, that's it. Uh I wasn't a huge Three Companies fan, but I had uh, but uh more of a John Ritter fan. You have to be but, old uh, like me to remember these things. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up with Nick I grew up with Nick at night, so Oh there you go. <laughs> but uh yeah, I could see this like it, that could have been a good transition role for him. Like he was trying to do in Problem Child, where he or in the It miniseries, where he, I'm not just this goofy character. I can do a little more of this. I can I can bring a little more heft to my roles here. Well, I wouldn't say playing uh, Ben Healy in Problem Child is definitely a heft in a acting role, but it's <laughs> it's 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 better than playing uh it's got a lot like a lot a little bit more uh dimension than playing Jack Tripper. Right. Does the original source material of a Christmas Carol work being modernized, Michael? I think it really does. Um you know I think that the writers on this um Mitch Glazer and Michael O'Donoghue Michael O'Donoghue is really funny. He wrote for Saturday Night Live for years, and I can't remember any specific sketches, but like they listed out one time a lot of these famous sketches on SNL from like the the heyday of like you know the John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd days, and a lot of them were Michael O'Donoghue and Mitch Glazer. Apparently, is 
also a huge Christmas Carol fan because I found an edition Carol in Barnes and Noble now about 15 years ago. And um, Mitch Glazer had written the the preface to it, kind of giving his thoughts on the story and the movie. So I think the combination of, you know, one writer who had this love of the source material, another writer who was really good at at comedy, I think they did a really good job of um, uh, of kind of modernizing it, which is a tricky thing. And, and also a tricky thing here, like we talked, where you're not only modernizing Christmas Carol, but it stars characters who are trying to put on a production of A Christmas Carol, which uh, works here. You know, sometimes when they try to do something like that, where it's like a, a play within a play or a movie within a movie, um, it's kind of a tricky thing to do and doesn't always work. Uh, but I think they do a really good job here. Um, you know, it, it's a movie unto itself because we all remember Scrooge. There's this modern day um, holiday comedy classic, but we also rank it, you know, in many ways among our top adaptations of Christmas Carol. Melissa, uh, what about you? Um, I think I think it works. I think it's a, it's an interesting take to of turning it into you know from um, you know Victorian London to now, and <clears throat> and I, I always find it interesting when you know, um, shows or movies, like, they, they take something that's, you know, an older story and turn it into, you know, put it into a, a different world. And, and I think this, this works in a, in a modern thing. It may not look the same, or the characters might not sort of be the same, but it still works, and they still represent those characters that you knew in, from the original story. And, and um, yeah, I think it, I, I think it works. Um, and, it, and it's an interesting, like I kind of said, like it's an interesting take on on this story. So, um, you know, it, it's not it's not really the same story. Like the, there's a lot of differences, but then it's still the same with you know meeting the, the three different ghosts and all this kind of stuff. So, it's it's yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. So, yeah, I think it works. <laughs> and called a clean sweep across the board. I think it works too. And uh... I'd say it's somewhat similar to the discussion we had with Guy on the Peanuts film about how, yeah, this material can be modernized, but I think you really have to walk that fine line of when it becomes too cliche. So we talked about, like, with the Peanuts film, you just can't have Charlie Brown walk around with a cell phone. It's It's right. got to have that sense of time, timelessness to it. Um, so I guess I can kind of segue into the last question, since we all agree that it can be modernized. Does it work best in the 80s? Or would it have worked better in another decade, Michael? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I I like it in the eighties because it it feels like it it feels like an eighties movie, quote unquote. But it, there is that element of timelessness to it, which I think is probably Dickens' story and the message uh, from his story. Um, but you know, there are elements in it that we look at as so eighties, like when you look at you know, the, the phone and the fact that nobody has a cell phone and, you know, that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's some things in it that are quintessentially, uh, or I shouldn't say quintessentially 80s. They're just, you know, it's just the time that it was, that it was made. Um, but, you know, I, I think, I think it works because, um, you know, Frank in that one scene with the, the ghost of Christmas past, 
gets his his childhood confused with TV shows, you know, where he's like, oh, I, I caught the baseball. And they're like, that was on the courtship of Eddie's father. And I was running down a field and that was on Little House on the Prairie. You know, I think this was kind of the Christmas, uh, a Christmas Carol or a version of Christmas Carol for that first generation who grew up with television. Uh, you know, because we go back to the 50s when he's a kid and we see Howdy Doody and we see the Lone Ranger and all the old shows. And then we go to the 60s um, and, and kind of the, the, the late 60s there when, um, you know, live TV shows like the Frisbee, the dog show for kids were a big deal. And then, you know, we come into the 80s when television, especially network television, was a big deal in, in the 80s. You know, the three major networks ruled in the 80s, it was right before kind of cable took over and obviously long before streaming or anything like that. So um, I think it works for the story to have it set where it is. Mm-hmm. And Melissa, Melissa, what about you? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I like that it's, it's you know, sort of, it has a bit of a timeless feel, but that it's, it is kind of very 80s. And I think it, it works very well. And because I think if you say if you if you made this movie now, and it would just be really odd in a way. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think it would work with like the technology and and just the, how those, how things are now. I don't think it would it would work as as well. It would be a little bit misplaced. I think. Um, yeah. In the eighties, it's it just I don't know. It just it just works. It doesn't seem misplaced or, or out of like it, it, it really, um, it, it just seems to work better in that in that time period while still having that timeless feel where you don't really know where it could like from what year or decade it could be in. Um, but yeah, I think I think it works for for that specific time period because, like I said, it would just be really odd being now. <laughs> I, it just wouldn't it wouldn't work so. They could say you'll receive the first text from the first ghost at one yeah. one a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be some like some teenage pimply faced teenager. <laughs> the, ghost, the ghost of Christmas future would be like a kid in a beard, kid, like a hipster with a beard and flannel shirt right, and a PBR. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think it works taking place in the '80s, being filmed in the '80s. Because if you try to have it take place in the '80s now, it it feel like it'd just be callback, callback city to yeah anything '80s. I agree. Yeah. I I think it would seem like it, it would seem too gimmicky. Like, why are you placing this in the '80s? There's no real reason to do that, you know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, as a because it don't really it does feel timeless in 1988 well i guess the references like little house in the prairie and uh the other show the show court uh, courtship of eddie's father yeah yeah courtship of eddie's father that kind of dates it a little bit because people who were born in that time frame are going to know those references but other than that it does have a very timeless feel like with the exception of those cell phones, you wouldn't be able to tell this takes place in 1988. Uh, uh, it's much like uh, Tim Burton's Batman. They could something in 1989, people are dressed in suits, but they still have the technology for Batman to have all of his wonderful toys. 
Joker can do yes. all the stuff he can do, right. but you, you don't you don't get a sense of what time and place it takes place in. Same with like the Peanuts film; it doesn't take place in the it doesn't take place in 2015 when the film, but it, it still feels timeless. Like it, you never know when a Peanuts take place. It feels like it's a 60s or 70s animated feature, only just the animation style is updated. Place. Yeah. Taking place in the 80s while being filmed in the 80s makes it feel a lot more timeless. It's just if you had a, if you did it now, you probably have to take him back to the past in the 80s. I would say. Yeah, which would just be weird. Yeah. Yeah. Much like how they do in it, like the new it films take place in the 80s, just because you had to have that time jump of what 30 years from when they're yeah. kids to when they're adults. So. But. Uh, yeah, I I like where it, uh, it being set in the '80s in the '80s makes it feel a lot more timeless. Otherwise, it'll feel like a time capsule. If you try to make it in 2020, that would take place in 1988. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and and I I also agree about um, the whole technology piece too. That you know that's such a big part of our life right now um, that you'd have to incorporate that somehow into this. Um, which I'm sure someone with a tremendous creative mindset could do it. I just don't know how you would how you would do that. I think it would add a whole other layer to the story. It's it's kind of like you know conversations that um, Andy and I have had about you know the fact that they're remaking Home Alone or Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and you know we we both think how in the world do you make those movies today because it's tough to leave a child home alone because they're always connected by cell phones and it's tough to be completely stranded at an airport because, you know, you've got a smartphone. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think to try to figure out the technology piece specifically in this would be a real challenge. Yeah. Maybe you could make it interesting where Frank's more cutthroat because now the network is battling with all the streaming services. No, that's, so yeah, that's, that's yeah, they're, they're losing business to Netflix or Hulu or they probably make something up for it. But, uh, so they're probably losing business to that. So maybe they do have to do all that cat and dog based programming that their boss was talking about. Uh-huh. Maybe I think it's, maybe it's only a matter of time before we get another, uh, maybe not a reboot of a Scrooge sp- specifically, but of a Christmas Carol. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, nice. Somebody's sitting in Hollywood right now, bored at home. They're like, oh, that'd be a good idea. What would, what would Scrooge, what would, what would a Christmas girl look like in 2020? Well, <laughs> I think we just lived it through the whole year. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Although I didn't, get, I didn't get Buster Poindexter showing outside my house, apartment with a, with a taxi cab, though. That's true. That would have been an improvement for this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, he, he could have driven onto my floor there you go <laughs> that's that's a strange scene isn't it yeah that, that scene well, is a strange scene uh how she can see him all of a sudden yes yeah, yeah. and he asks what floor and she never questions it <laughs> no. yeah. or, oh, oh i'm sure lump i'm sure lumpy sent you <laughs> <laughs> In, in the short amount of time, like, oh, can you get me there in however many minutes? And like, what floor? And it's just, it, it's never really discussed. Like, just, okay, this is happening now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they they just, they went for a laugh that wasn't there, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm sure, Michael. I'm sure, Michael. You can vouch that you can't get anywhere in New York in three minutes. I'm assuming either. Oh no, not at all. Especially, especially during the holiday season, or what you know, what was the holiday season in years past? Um, it's absolute gridlock in New York City, and the cops actually are in a lot of the major intersections, and they will hand out tickets to anybody who blocks the intersection. So if you you have to wait uh, if you're at a green light to make sure that it doesn't change to red before you go into the intersection because the traffic is just horrendous. And then the foot traffic as well is just insane. Wow. Wow. But, uh, yeah, so to have a cab oh, that would he, get you anywhere to the third floor in New York City would be beautiful. <laughs> in, in, in three minutes. Well, he can drive exactly. through cars. It's been established he can drive through cars. So I guess that That's makes it a little true. bit easier. <laughs> well, you talk about like modernizing Home Alone, too. Like Home Alone, there's no way they're running all the way up to the gate straight from the front door. With, right. In a yeah, post-9-11 uh, post world, you're, you're yeah. not running right up to the gate. That's a good call, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, are missing, you have to be there in major cities. You have to be there like two hours before your flight takes off to get through TSA. Like, uh, I know it. Yeah. McAllister's missed their flight, the 2020 version. (laughs) 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 That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, does uh, anybody else have any questions to ask? No, I mean, I, I, my, my question is, um, I, I, you may have answered it just in talking about um, where this ranked for you. Was was that the reason why you picked Scrooge? Because it's one of your favorite uh, Dickens adaptations? Yeah, and I wanted to appeal to uh, Melissa's love for Bill Murray, too. And uh, it, was, it was down between this and Ernest Saves Christmas. And I thought oh, it was yeah. probably... Which I, it's the one I haven't seen in a while, but I have grown up with. But I, I, I what I try to plan episodes, I try to make things that are easily accessible for Melissa living in Canada, because things we take for a grain of living down here in the states, we, we all, oh, oh, I need, I need to watch Scrooge. Oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. I want to pick something that she would. I know she would. I thought she would enjoy too. Yeah. But yeah, that that and it ranks up there for me too. Was Another reason. Well, it's a good choice. I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed talking about it again. Well, I'm glad you could make it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I got an early Christmas gift by getting a Michael Lyons story. <laughs> well, <look at> <laughs> uh, if I knew that's all I would have taken, I would have done my Christmas shopping earlier this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is Giving Tuesday, and you gave me the gift of a Michael <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, Melissa, what about you? Any questions for the panel? No, I don't think so. I think, um, no, I don't have any. But final thoughts, I think, you know, it, it's not um, not my favorite adaptation of, of A Christmas Carol of the Dickens story. Um, but it it's good enough for for a watch, and and it it extended my my Christmas Carol uh, rank list so to three instead of two, so, <laughs> so something good came out of it. <laughs> well, now that, now that you're now that you're new to this, will you rewatch this? 
I think so. I, I think it... Well, I do own the movie now, so I can I can rewatch it um, anytime. But I think it'll be... It's worth a rewatch, absolutely. Well, not necessarily, because... I'm looking at Seed of Chucky on my DVD list right now. And just because you own it doesn't mean you have to watch it. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's movies I own and just complete set. So <laughs> I don't, it doesn't mean I love it. This one is worth a, it is worth a watch. I think it's, it's fun enough that yeah, I I rewatch it. So there you go. <laughs> oh, M- Michael, Melissa gave her closing thoughts. Do you have any? How about your closing thoughts on Scrooge? Yeah, I think this uh, Scrooge works really well as uh, you know a very um, off kilter Christmas comedy um, and a much different adaptation of uh, a Christmas Carol. Um, I think it very much caters to Bill Murray and his talents and a bit of his personality, uh, too. Um, and I think they do a really good job of, um, setting the story within a story. Um, and then, you know, even with all of the insanity that goes on with the comedy, they're still able to bring it back to what, um, the intent of the story of Christmas Carol is all about. And that's that, you know, the, the past is never truly, uh, written and you can write your own future and um, you can learn from the past. Um, mm. And, you know, it was a Bill Murray's line, like, you know, for a few hours uh, out of the day, we're the people we wish we were all year. I think that's a really nice line of his big, you know, improvised scene there at the end. And I think that's the, the heart of the movie. And I think they get to that. And um, I think there's a reason that, you know, um, all these years later, uh, we're still talking about Scrooge. Mm. it's still very relevant like it's still a, a a relevant topic and you know it's it's a good reminder that you know things you're you're going through or things change or something that you know your path isn't necessarily concrete like you can do whatever you want with it and you know you can let go of your past and all that kind of stuff and still move forward and so i think it's and i think that's why it's been been told so many times in different ways because it's it's a topic that just you know you need that reminder that you know um that that message in there yep for sure and Melissa, do you have any additional closing thoughts before i give mine i've given mine i'm good (laughs) well like we said numerous times throughout the episode it is a modern day christmas classic film and we, I don't think we've spoiled it too much because that's I think that's the benefit of this roundtable format is we don't go beat for beat, so we haven't really spoiled the death, the, the whole plot of the film. But we have put a lot of the highlights, which there are so many we overlooked, too. Like, we, we glossed over a little bit of Carol Kane and her performance. Like, yeah, we talk about how she beats the crap out of Bill Murray throughout the whole <laughs> sketch, but her performance is so well done. It's, it's, it's something to be seen. Um, if you haven't seen it, go out and see it now. Now's the time of the year. If you follow the real fans cheerathon like the three of us do, then it's it's an easy one. Plus, we can add this podcast network too. So we'll kill two birds one stone. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's if you're a not even if you're just like a Christmas movie fan, 
if you just like a fan of, or not even a, specifically a fan of Bill Murray, if you're just a comedy fan, say you watch, change it up a little bit from your Christmas viewing of watching Strictly uh, Elf or what have you, or the 12,000 movies they have on Hallmark and Lifetime this time, <laughs> time of year, starring, starring, starring the same six people. Um, <laughs> well, now it's five, because Aunt Becky's in prison. Um, <laughs> that's not the most political we get on this show. Uh, go give it a watch, and... Maybe if you see for yourself, if you're nostalgic for the 80s, you'll see why it is a modern classic. It It's very much Bill Murray at, it, at, it, at, his, at his best. You wouldn't be able to tell that he's been out of the game for four years at this point watching this film. So it comes highly recommended for this whole panel, so go ahead and give it a watch. Or don't. Whatever. <laughs> Your loss. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, where can our listeners keep up with you? Yeah, well, first off, thank you both for uh, having me on. Um, I enjoy your podcast, and um, this was uh, a great episode to be a part of, and um, really enjoy uh, talking with both of you about this movie. So um, much appreciate uh, being a guest on the show. Um, if you'd like to keep up with me on social media, I'm on Twitter at MLionsFL. Um, I have my blog, as I talked about, Screensaver, a retro review of TV shows and movies of yesteryear, and that's at screensaverblog.blogspot.com. And I have a weekly column uh, in uh, on the website um, Animation Scoop, which is at animationscoop.com. So if you're an animation fan, anything past, present, future, uh, the history, and both what's going on in the industry, there's that uh, website as well. So, um, yeah, thank you again and happy holidays to both of you and to everyone out there. Have a safe one as well. Definitely. Michael, you ever thought about starting your own like animation based podcast? Because you definitely could do it. You have the knowledge for it. Uh, yeah, there, there's a few different podcasts that are kicking around in my brain. And that's uh, that's definitely one of them. I just need to kind of nail down the, the technology and uh Kind of, I'd kind of use a little bit of your format, a little bit of the other formats that I've that I've seen. But yeah, that's one of the ideas I have for sure. Uh, I guarantee it'd be a day one subscribe for me. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you got one follower. There you go. All right, I already got one. I don't even have the podcast, and I have one follower. I'll have two of them. All right. <laughs> We're, we're handing out Christmas gifts everywhere today. I'll on this tell episode. you, man, and, and all I had to do was tell a story, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> which I'll usually do to anyone who listens. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember Guy being excited to hear one on the Jaws Two episode of Real Fans. <laughs> That's right, I forgot about that. <laughs> and uh, don't forget to check Michael out on Disorder, uh, which. Also, a great podcast with um, Michael and, or with Andy and Hunter as well. And I, I just heard you uh, just last night at the time of this recording on uh, Dark Tower Radio talk about misery. That's right. I'm I'm I have a uh, a tour that I'm doing of of podcasts. Uh, so you you both of you are on the tour. I'm going to give you a T-shirt yes. made up, and on the back of it, I'll have all the podcasts I've been on. So uh, yeah, I was on uh, Dark Tower Radio with um, Jeremy and uh, Guy, and we were talking about the 30th anniversary of Misery. 
That was a good listen, especially I love the comparison of Rob Zombie, Rob Zombie like essentially directing misery. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I'm 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 all for the I'm all for the the t- the tour t-shirt. I wore, I wore a three XL. Let's make sure it's black. <laughs> there you go. Let me write that down. I'll take all the sizes. <laughs> I was just thinking that too, like you need to have a little t-shirt of all the tour stops you've made lately i've been following you on facebook you've made quite a few stops lately i have but it's been uh, it's been really great it's been a pleasure get to talk to uh you know fellow movie lovers and christmas lovers like both of you so it's been a lot of fun and uh i can speak i'm i'm speaking on behalf of melissa i hope you definitely come back to our little show sometime oh anytime just ask me anytime and even if it's to curse me out about watching freaked I'll I'll take it like a man. (laughs) I'm used to to getting those texts. What the hell did you just make me watch? (laughs) Usually on the real fans page, they just tag somebody like, all right, I'm watching this because so-and-so told me to watch it. And then you usually get the comment from the person like, good luck. I, I get those texts from Melissa a lot. What the hell did I just watch? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Melissa, where can the, the listeners find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Um, they can find me on Twitter at MissMelissaN25. And they can also find me on Instagram at the same uh, MissMelissaN25. And as always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at QCA underscore Mista, M-I-S-T-A underscore J. My tribute to the greatest comic book character of all time, the Joker. Um, I also, at the time of this recording, or at the time of this episode being released, I just did a few episodes of uh, I Love That Movie with Lisa. Um, I did a Patreon episode, which you means you have to pay to hear my dumb voice on that one, to hear me talk about... To hear me talk about uh, an episode of The Mandalorian from season one called The Prisoner. And then uh, record an episode of I Love That Movie uh, talking about another favorite Christmas movie, Gremlins. So uh, be sure to look for that wherever you find your uh, podcasts. And give her a like and a follow as well as all of Michael's shows because Lisa does wonderful work. Now, Michael, I think you have you ever been on I Love That Movie, Michael? I have not. No, I haven't. I've, I've, I've heard it, but um, I've, never, I've never been on. I think I think you'd like it. It's just a very casual conversation. I think you'd fit right in there. Yeah, no, it sounds it. Someday, maybe it'll be the next stop on my tour. There you go. <laughs> um, as a podcast, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Nerdite Nations Podcast. We do have an email, nerdnightnationspodcast at gmail dot com. If you want to send us an email, we don't get quite the length of emails that michael and andy do we're still waiting on our first email that isn't twitter or pod being trying to get us to sign up for monetizing our podcast (laughs) 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 but i will write a letter i'll tell you what i'll write a i'll write an email asking both of you to rank your favorite smoking the bandit movies (laughs) all right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this will be the one time we forget to check the email before we record. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh yeah. 
Well, you've put up with me so many times on Disorder. I've written in the mailbox so many times for Disorder, which, spoiler alert, I just dropped one email in the box about Ralph Breaks the Internet. So oh, hopefully cool. it gets read. Very cool. But, uh, and don't forget to find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and now Podcasts. So you can find us. We're, we're moving up in the world now. Now we're on three platforms. So you can rank them now. Now you can rank them one, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, be sure to tune in next week for our next episode where we're going to be discussing another rendition of A Christmas Carol, <laughs> uh, this time with guest Philip Barker. So make sure you stick around. Um, Michael, once again, thank you for coming. Uh, we love to have you on. We hope to have you back again soon. Thank you both. I look forward to it. Well, even now we're in the holiday season. We've made it through most of 2020. We're in the holiday season, so this is the time of the year we need to be all bright and cheery, genuinely bright and cheery instead of pretending to to get through all these rough times right now. Uh, so make sure you're being good to one another out there, not just because it's Christmas, but just because you want to be a genuine good person. So we've been signing off lately in 2020 as by saying, be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes. <laughs> hey, happy holidays. Thanks for listening. The thoughts and opinions expressed by your ambassadors and their guests are theirs and theirs alone. And do not represent the companies they happen to work for. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>